the Eighth Circuit Network. We make things, put them in your brain. Hi, <laughs> kids. Hi. <laughs> Hello, funky listeners, and welcome to another episode of Funk Radio. This is your host, Kyle. And this is your kind of terrified host, Peter. We thought it would be fun to do an episode. I don't know why we never thought of actually doing an episode like this before, but doing one about solo artists that went on to have solo careers after being in equally famous bands. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch that, uh, you know, went on to have good solo careers after being from crappy bands. Mm. But that would take too long to go through. <laughs> so we narrowed it down to ones that were in successful bands. That's cool. Yeah. That seems pretty common with funk bands. That yeah. they'll become popular, and then as time goes on, they kind of change their sound or yeah. whatever. And then the usually it's the lead singer who does his own thing afterward. Or her own thing, in some cases. Indeed. Well, we actually our first one um, is about a female band called the Supremes. If you don't know who they are, they're pretty popular, but if you don't know, uh, the Supremes were a female vocal group and the premier act of Motown Records during its golden age in the 1960s. To date, I didn't know this, they are America's most successful vocal group with 12 wow. number one singles, most of which were written and produced by Motown's songwriting and production team, Holland Dozier Holland. And at the peak of their career, the Supremes rivaled the Beatles in worldwide popularity, which is pretty impressive. That is really impressive. You don't really have Supremes mania like you have Beatle mania. Supreme mania sounds like an advertisement for like a terrible Taco Bell food. <laughs> like you know, they do that terrible advertising of like fourth meal for the person who likes to get high and eat food at midnight. Oh yeah. They have like Supreme mania, <laughs> Supreme tacos. It's where they take a whole bowl of nachos and they put it in a burrito. And then that's in a taco. And then they wrap that in a pizza. (laughs) And then they blend the entire thing in a bathtub and then inject it into your veins. Only for (laughs) $3.99. Oh, that's too funny. I told you about how the, like, marketing CEO of Taco Bell came to one of my business classes to give a talk because their headquarters is in Irvine. Oh, yeah. And I was very tempted to ask him because at that time they were still going through that lawsuit from the FDA that they couldn't call their meat meat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I really wanted to ask him about that, but I didn't want to, like, get kicked out of the class <laughs> by the professor. That's fine. So I didn't. Uh, well. So, yeah. The Supremes loved Taco Bell, too. Um, we don't know <laughs> I, that for sure, but... I don't think Taco Bell existed in the 60s, actually, but... I don't know. Probably not. No. Anyway, let's look that up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now I'm curious. Fun fast food fact. Interesting. Taco Bell was actually founded on March 21st, 1962. In Downey, California. Oh, well, you're there too. But that was a year after the Supreme signed to Motown Records. I think there's a connection there. So... (laughs) For all we know, maybe during their popularity peak, they had a, a special thing there called the Supreme Mania. We'll never Peter, know. do you live moss? I live moss every day. See, their actual advertising should be called Live Manos because you live less because you eat their food and then die you earlier. Eat Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Anyway, 
back to the actual facts about the Supremes. So the group was formed by Florence Ballard, Mary Wilson, Diana Ross, and Betty McGlown, all from Brewster Douglas Public Housing Project in Detroit. They originally named themselves the Primettes as a sister act to the Primes, who included such people as Paul Williams and Eddie Kendricks, who you may know went on to form the Temptations. And I know later on, during the Motown years, the Supremes and the Temptations were basically the two top billing acts of that record label, so it's interesting to see even really early on, at the beginning, they had connections uh, Mm. between the two, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is. And then by 1961, uh, the group downsized slightly to a trio and were signed to Motown Records as the Supremes. So Diana Ross, she's a very famous singer. Um, She was from this group, as you already know, because we said that. Uh, She was the group's lead singer, and her popularity eventually led to the group being renamed Diana Ross and the Supremes. And Ross eventually left to pursue her solo career in 1970, and she was replaced by Jean Terrell, um, at which point, basically from then on, between 1970 and 77, apparently all the members changed up a whole bunch of times, and then they eventually just disbanded in 77. So I see. But, as you listeners will soon know, uh, Diana Ross was very popular well beyond 1977. So, But first, let's play a song from kind of the the peak of the Supremes career. The song is called Baby Love. Uh, It's a really good example of their sound, not only specifically for this group, uh, but also for the Motown sound in general uh, during the 60s. So let's take a listen to Baby Love. That was Baby Love by the Supremes. Pretty good song. Yeah. So, as we were saying uh, before that clip, the lead singer from the Supremes, obviously, was Diana Ross. And in 1970, she left the group to pursue her own solo career. Um, Just two months after she left the group, Diana Ross uh, released her first debut album, which was also called Diana Ross. And uh, this album included such hits as Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand, and also her rendition of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, uh, which became her first number one hit as a solo artist, which is pretty cool, and that's a really good version of that song as well. I I personally enjoy that version more than the Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell version. Really? Yeah. I like the Marvin Gaye version better, but that's just me. They're both really good. No, they are. Um, are. They're a bit different, too. I think Marvin Gaye's is more... How do I describe it? Like, the Diana Ross's version is much more fast-paced, where Marvin Gaye's is a little bit more slowed down, I think. Because they're like, ain't no mountain high enough, do do, ain't no mountain, barely low enough. Whereas Marvin Gaye's like, mm. ain't no mountain high enough. That's true. You know? Well, part of the Diana Ross one is a lot slower, but I think it kind of speeds yeah. up at the end. It, it's got a very variable tempo, whereas Marvin Gaye's is pretty consistent. Throughout. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're both pretty good versions. If you haven't heard either one of those, you should. I can dig it. Me too. Kind of funny, late 70s, Diana Ross was attending a live performance of the disco band Chic with her daughters, and um, after the concert, Ross requested from the band members Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards uh, to work with her on her next album. Uh, They agreed to do that, which is cool of them, and in 1980, they produced her album, just called Diana, and that 
I think partly because of the whole disco craze around that time and the popularity of Chic as well. That became her most successful solo album and featured such hits as Upside Down and I'm Coming Out, the latter of which we will be talking about more specifically. Um, Along with being a veritable disco hit, I'm Coming Out is also kind of now known as the unofficial anthem for gay pride. Really? Yeah, because I guess it's about coming out, which is what gay people do, usually. Oh, I, I get it. That makes sense. So, it turns out I have that album on vinyl. Oh, we can Damn. do that, then. We could. Okay, let me put it on. Some of you listeners may recognize that song because it's fairly popular, and it it was one of her most popular songs during her solo career. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is. Um, One more thing about her. She's pretty much considered the best female entertainer of the 20th century. Really? Yeah. In 1993, the Guinness Book of World Records declared Diana Ross as the most successful female music artist in history due to her success in the U.S. and the U.K., for having more hits than any female artist in the charts, with a career total of 70 hit singles. Holy crap. Between her work with the Supremes and also as a solo artist. So yeah, she's basically the most successful singer ever. So, Well, That's arguably. One more thing about I'm Coming Out. I didn't know this, but it was heavily sampled in Notorious B.I.G.'s song, Mo Money, Mo Problems. Really? Yeah. That's and I cool. never listened to it before, but then I did. After reading this, it's a really good song. I don't know. <laughs> kind of random. So, yes, that was the, I guess, rise to fame of Diana Ross from The Supremes. Mm-hmm. And next, we're going to get into the rise of Curtis Mayfield through his original band, The Impressions. Yeah. For those of you that don't know, The Impressions were a R&B harmony group found in Chicago in 1957. Cool. And they were actually originally more in the doo-wop scene, and they called themselves the Roosters, hmm. which is kind of weird. Lead singer at the time for the band, uh, Jerry Butler, who I believe we've talked about in the show before, yeah, actually brought in his friend, Curtis Mayfield, to be the guitarist for the group. But Butler soon left after a couple of years to pursue his own solo career, which was very successful in and of itself. Is he the one who's saying, never going to give you up? Yes. Yeah, that's a good song. For sure. And I guess in his absence, he left Mayfield to be the new lead tenor, and he eventually grew to become the group's kind of chief composer as well. Hmm. In like 1960, he tried to move the group to New York to record at Paramount, and they recorded a couple singles there, but they didn't really have any major success. Hmm. So a couple of the members split, and so the remaining trio that was left moved back to Chicago in 1962, to record with uh, Johnny Plate, who was very famous around that area, and he added to the group much more of a gospel sound, Hmm. and that sort of infused gospel would then lead them to success during the Civil Rights Movement, because Curtis wrote very politically charged songs, such as Amen and People Get Ready. They weren't really as overtly political as some of his later stuff, Hmm. especially stuff that he did solo but you could kind of see the seeds of 
social awareness, even while he was with the Impressions. Well, People Get Ready is, I would say, not only a socially conscious song, but also definitely with some gospel background on it. It's interesting to see that combination. It is indeed. And I didn't know that Johnny Plate was their gospel guy. Yeah, who is Johnny Plate? You seem to know better than me. <sighs> the name sounds familiar, but I don't know who he was. I think we should listen to a little clip of that particular song, People Get Ready, so you guys can get a little bit of a sense of how the impression sounded with Curtis as their lead singer. Ooh. So here is People Get Ready. So people get ready for the train to join. Picking up passengers coast to coast. That was People Get Ready. You can definitely hear just from the lyrics alone the very gospel-infused religious tones. But um, I guess that song was used as a really big sort of anthem for the civil rights movement in the mid-60s. That's really cool. So that's pretty awesome. Good for them. I really, you know what song I really like by them? What? Is, um... Gypsy Woman, It's Alright. It's Alright. I, I love that song. Right. Yeah, same here. Should have picked that one, but whoops. This is really, I really like this song, too. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that was People Get Ready by The Impressions, and you got to hear that on Silky Smooth Vinyl. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Next up is obviously the member of The Impressions that went on to have solo career, Curtis Mayfield. And I guess in 1970, Mayfield left the impression to begin his solo career, founding his independent record label called Curtum Records. Hmm. Custom, but with an R. Because his name's Curtis. Curtum. Curtum went on to release most of Mayfield's landmark 1970 records, as well as records by The Impressions, Leroy Hudson, The Staple Singers, Mavis Staples, Baby Huey, and The Babysitters. That is an awesome name for a band. That That is a really cool name for a band. (laughs) Um, a group is that which, like what Huey Lewis and News were before they no. were famous in the 80s? I think it was <laughs> Baby, Baby Huey. Baby Huey, yeah. And his babysitters, they made a band. I like that. Because he was such a musical baby that when his parents were away, he would start a band. Exactly. Was that what I... <laughs> um, no, but in fact, that actually was the group that at the time included Chaka Khan before she had her solo career. Oh, wow. Okay. So if we did one on bands with goofy names that no one ever heard of that birthed <laughs> famous artists, we could have put her in there. That's funny. Well, she was uh, also with Rufus as well in the she was. 70s, so... Well, this was, what? This was, like, way earlier than 1970, so... Yeah, okay. A little yeah. bit earlier, probably even when she joined Rufus. I don't know why every time... This is really stupid. Every time I think of Rufus and Shaka Khan, I think of the little naked mole rat from Kim Possible. Okay. His <laughs> <laughs> name was Rufus. Shut up. <laughs> I am five years old. Uh, regarding Curtis Mayfield, his commercial and critical peak uh, for his solo career really came when he did the soundtrack for Superfly, mm. uh, which is, as we've easily discussed on this uh, program before, a black exploitation film that did terrible because it was terrible, but <laughs> his music was awesome in it and far outsold uh, tickets to the actual movie. I think it, like, outgrossed the movie, like, in total, in its lifespan, like, 10 to 1. Yeah, something like that. 
So the music was awesome, but the movie was... And it's actually considered by many to be one of the most influential albums in African-American history, which is pretty crazy. I can see that. Due to the success of the album, he was dubbed the gentle genius to reflect his outstanding and innovative musical output with the constant presence of his soft yet insistent vocals. Hmm. Because he's very soft-spoken. Yeah. Um, Single releases such as Freddy's Dead and Superfly both sold over 1 million copies each and were awarded gold discs by the uh, RIA8. Hold on one second. Where is it? Do you have a gold disc? No, I have Superfly. Hey, Kyle. Yes? If there's a hell below, are we all going to go? Probably. We definitely will. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good song, too. That is a very good song. Ah, found it. There's actually a version of People Get Ready that's a group version with maybe Staples and the Staples singers with Curtis Mayfield singing together. Really? Yeah. And I see now that the connection between the two is that they recorded under his label. So that's that's interesting. Pretty cool. Do you have the, the record? Yes. Um, we're going to listen to a little clip of Freddy's Dead off of the Superfly album by Curtis Mayfield. I don't think we played this one yet on the show, and it's actually one of my favorites off the album. Yeah, that's good. That's what I said. Like the man that the plants had been sitting home, but his hope was a wreck and he should have known. It's hard to understand. There was love in this man. I'm sure all would agree that his misery was this woman and things. Now Freddy's dead. That's what I say. Yeah. So, who was um, Freddy? Like, what character was that in the movie? I don't even remember. It was it was one of the drug dealers for the main main pimp character, and I guess he got in trouble with another drug dealer, and they killed him. Uh. So it forced the main character, whose name I forgot, uh, to. Wasn't that like priest? Yeah. It forced Priest to kind of confront his actions. Because hmm. Freddy died. It's very similar to uh, Breaking Bad when Combo died. He multiplied to confront his actions. I guess so. Because Jesse was very sad about it. About Combo? That, was, that scene was so messed up with the kid. No spoilers. Wasn't that from like season two? Yeah, something, something. Like, something like that. <laughs> Do you think we should talk to Curtis Mayfield about doing a... A Breaking Bad a, episode. A breaking bad, no, a version of that song called Combo's Dead. Yes. <laughs> to be honest, I'm so happy they didn't play any, like, Curtis Mayfield stuff, because that, like, as, as awesome as this album is, it's become, like, the staple for, like, drug movies. Oh, so you think it would be so, cliche to put it. Yeah, if they played, like, Pusher Man or something, I'm just like... Just really <laughs> that would nice. actually be really cool. <laughs> I don't know. That's what we need to do, and I think I sent you the link. I found a site that listed all the different music in the in the various episodes of Breaking Bad. Is do an episode on. Oh, I know. You have to do that. I forgot. I gotta go through and actually find genres that are relevant because they they play like anything and everything. So yeah, we may need to expand a little bit for that. That's fine. Um, some really which is songs. fine with me, but yeah, even, even some country stuff and stuff that they used was really dope. Early, yeah, early. The early few seasons, they really had a lot of good music for sure uh, good stuff yeah so that was Curtis Mayfield in all his glory what do we got up next it's kind of we, I was 
Well, coming up next, we have the comedies featuring Lionel Richie. You have to talk first. But first, I want to say, it's kind of funny that Superfly is the the premier black exploitation movie, considering that the main actor of that was like, that black guy was really white. Ron O'Neill? Yeah, or whatever his name was. I think that's his name. Because like in some of the scenes, he looked just like a white guy with a mustache. Pretty much. So he, he was like the Obama of black exploitation figures. He made Obama look really dark. That's how light he was. Yeah. Um. But I guess I don't know that I it, I always found that a little weird. But I don't know. No, I agree. Like when we watched that film, there was some probably partially because, like, the quality of that film, even for the seventies, was bad. <laughs> so they probably just caked him up in makeup so that like, the shoddy film. Using uh, could like see him. That's true. You know, like in the '30s when like they were just cake people in makeup because the cameras were taking terrible. so much light or whatever. Yeah, probably same thing. Speaking of films, oh my god, I watched this film today. Part of it, at least, from the 1930s. It was done by Paramount called Freaks. It was okay. really disturbing. It was about circus freaks, and like there was like an affair, and like this one point, like this trapeze artist was like manipulating like one of the freaks in the show which was this little midget guy who was adorable because he looked like a baby but he was like (laughs) an adult like he literally looked like a baby it wasn't even like a normal midget where like he just looks like you know a dude with small proportions he looked like a baby (laughs) so it was like baby guy and this trapeze Russian trapeze artist was like manipulating him because I guess he inherited money and she plotted to kill him and there was an affair and then at the end like because she pisses off all the freaks because, like, I don't know, they're at some banquet for their wedding and she, like, lambasts all of them. And then at the end, because they realize that she's trying to basically slowly poison little baby midget dude, they basically kill her. And, oh. like, it's really disturbing because it's all these people with, like, you know, missing, like, arms and legs. And, like, there was this one guy that looked like a Cro-Magnum man. And they're all, like, <laughs> coming at her in the rain and it's really terrifying. That sounds really scary. It was pretty awesome. I, I didn't realize that the 30s actually had good movies like that. I thought they just had, like, Stagecoach. <laughs> so, yeah, um, if anyone wants to watch a really creepy 30s movie for Halloween, I highly recommend that film. Freaks? Yes. <laughs> okay. Where did you find that? It was on Turner Classic Movies or something. Oh, okay. So, yeah. A lot of this stuff, those early movies were really... Like, anything 30s and before that was kind of creepy. Yeah, I... True. Apparently, like, the film was so, like, creepy and, like, not really super well-received by the public, because they're just like, this is weird, that Paramount sold the film and didn't even want to admit that it made the film. (laughs) They're just like, yeah, we didn't make that. That was, no, that wasn't us. (laughs) So, um, yeah, uh, that is my terrible film tangent of the day. What do we have up next, Mr. Peter? Well, as I said a few minutes ago, um... Our next group slash solo guy that we want to talk about is the Commodores slash Lionel Richie. The Commodores, as we've talked about a little bit before on this show, are an American funk slash soul band popular throughout the 70s and 80s. The group's members signed with Motown Records in November 1972, having first caught the public eye opening for the Jackson 5 while on tour. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. For any of you listeners wondering about the group's name, the Commodores, uh, apparently it was chosen completely at random. The group came together from two former groups called the Mystics and the Jays, but the, the members wanted to change their name to something different. The trumpeter from the band, William King, opened a dictionary and randomly picked a word. He later told People magazine 
quote, we lucked out. We almost became the commodes. Yeah. So um, that's how they became known as the Commodores. Which that's is pretty awesome. Because, yeah, I n- never understood that. That made no sense to me. Well, <laughs> apparently it doesn't make sense to anybody because it's random. Yeah. In dictionary. What if they just landed on, like, the Aardvarks or something? <laughs> the xylophones. So the Commodores began their career um, stylistically as one of the signature bands within uh, the upbeat funk style in the early 1970s, which was um, really prevalent in their first few albums, um, particularly their debut album called Machine Gun, which is a really good album. Um, During this time, they released a lot of their most famous hits, uh, including Machine Gun, The Bump, Too Hot to Trot, and Brick House. Uh, Brick House being a very popular funk song that you still hear today sometimes. For sure. Later in the 70s, though, and into the early 80s, um, their style kind of transitioned into as I mean, because funk kind of left the stage, so to speak, by the late seventies, early eighties. Anyway, their style kind of transitioned uh, into kind of like a slower soul ballad type style with songs like "Easy," Three Times a Lady," and "Night Shift." Although I want to say that even between those two different styles, um, they have a lot of really good songs. During this time of the slower soul ballads style. Uh, in 1982, that is when Lionel Richie decided to leave the group to pursue his own solo career. So, within that style, we're going to play a song by the Commodores called Easy. I don't know if you have this one on vinyl, Kyle. I think you do, right? I do, but I don't. I'll, I'll find it. Okay. Uh. So, that was easy to play. Um, <laughs> that was easy by the Commodores. Fun fact, that song was actually covered by the 90s band Faith No More, I which also that. had that famous song Epic, mm. which is kind of a weird song. But um, their yeah. version became fairly popular as well. I never knew that. But um, that, that style that you heard just in the song, Easy, um, that same genre, I guess, followed Lionel Richie as he um, moved to his solo career in 1982 and onward. His career was actually really quickly made successful um, when he released his first album, Truly, in 1982 with Motown Records. So that within the first year of uh, leaving the Commodores, he released his first solo album. It became very popular. Um, The title song from that album, called Truly, became a number one hit. And the album itself sold over four million copies, which is a heck of a lot. That's impressive. His uh, second album, which came out a year or two after that, uh, called Can't Slow Down, sold twice as many copies, and won him two different Grammy Awards. And then 1985, he released his third album, called Dancing on the Ceiling, the name of which you may recognize, because it includes two of his most famous songs, Dancing on the Ceiling and Say You, Say Me, which is arguably his uh, most famous song as a solo artist. And that song won him the Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1985. That's pretty cool. After the release of that third album, uh, strangely enough, Richie kind of went on a hiatus, and didn't release any other album of completely original material for over a decade. Really? Which is kind of weird, considering he had three hit albums in a row, and then he just stopped. I don't know why. Um, that's what happened. So, regarding Say You, Say Me, if you haven't heard it before, 
or at least if you don't know it by name, you may know it by sound. Let's go ahead and listen to a clip of Say You, Say Me by Lionel Richie. Okay. I, I think I'm one of the few people that actually really liked Lionel Richie's solo career. Like, it kind of, mm. I don't know, became a cliche of the 80s. <laughs> but yeah. Because it was so stereotypically 80s. But, um, yeah, I liked a lot of the songs that came out of that. I don't yeah. Know, that'd be weird. Well, he was really, um, for lack of a better term, uh, a kind of a trailblazer in that smooth R&B sound as it was mm. developing in the 80s. And a lot of people took inspiration from him. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, from there on, so that's pretty cool. He's a pretty cool guy. Does he and still he, do stuff? I, I think he still is touring I'm sure today. I'm sure I don't know about does. the Commodores. Well, the Commodores are apparently still really? in existence, but I don't know what they're doing. That's sad. Yeah. <laughs> very, very sad. <laughs> um, so, yes, that was Say You, Say Me by Lionel Richie. Good stuff. Um, next up, we have probably one of the most famous groups to birth like a bajillion solo artists. <laughs> the Temptations, who birthed David Ruffin, who birthed Eddie Kendricks, who I think we're going to talk about in a future episode because I didn't want to talk about mm. both of them. Right. Uh, Jimmy Ruffin, who is David Ruffin's brother, and probably many others. Um, so when we say that they birthed all these guys, we don't mean physically, just career-wise. No, they, they, they reproduce by meiosis. They just split apart to become... <laughs> that's, how, that's how they changed members like constantly throughout the 60s and 70s interesting <laughs> science meets funk science uh, the Temptations actually recruited David Ruffin in 1964 to replace Al Bryant on keyboard because Al physically attacked another member Paul Williams over a disagreement so they're like yeah you're out <laughs> cool <laughs> poor Al um, the bespectacled Ruffin initially sang backgrounds while the role of lead singer was mostly alternated between Eddie Kendricks and Paul Williams, both of who had solo careers after <laughs> The Temptations. <laughs> nice. Um, he did actually sing a few lead parts, both on stage and in the studio, during his first year with the group, but his leads on these tracks weren't really professional. No, I wouldn't say professional, but weren't really quality Popular. material. No, they were good. They just they were more recorded for fun, so they didn't have that level of polish that they would expect uh. of a full song release. I see. However, Smokey Robinson, who actually produced and co-wrote most of the Temptations material during this period, saw Ruffin as a, quote, sleeping giant in the group because of his unique voice that was described as mellow yet gruff. Hmm. Robinson thought that he could write just the perfect song for Ruffin's voice, and he, um, if he, if he were, was able to do that, he would have a total smash hit. And the song had to be something that Ruffin could belt out yet something that was melodic and sweet, and that song ended up being My Girl, which is one of The Temptations' most famous songs. Oh, yeah. And that was when he kind of transitioned to become more of a lead member. They had tons of songs after that, like they had The Way You Do The Things You Do, My Girl, Since I Lost My Baby, um, Get Ready, and the song that we're about to play next, which is actually probably one of my favorite Temptation songs from their early era, uh, is It's Growing, which I have here on vinyl. Oh dear. The name doesn't sound familiar to me. Maybe I'll recognize the sound. You might. Yeah. 
So? So, yeah. I've never heard that song before. Really? Yeah. I really like it, though. Yeah, you should check it out. It's, I don't know, like I said, where I found it, but it's ended up being one of my favorites. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely within, like, the early Oh yeah, sound. Totally. It sounds a lot like the early stuff. Totally, totally. Cool. Um, so, yeah, that was It's Growing by The Temptations, which had David Ruffin as lead singer. However, David Ruffin eventually began to have a bit of a tiff with the group, um, he got into drug abuse, he started not showing up to practices, and they kind of started getting fed up with him. And he, in that time, he also started to get kind of a big ego, to the point that he wanted to actually call the group David Ruffin and the Temptations, because he was inspired by the fact that the Supremes changed their name to Diana Ross and the Supremes. So he's like, wait a second, I'm the main guy here. Their name should be my name. So that kind of ticked off all the other members, and it grew to the point that David Ruffin actually filed a suit against Motown, seeking a release from his contract with the Temptations in 1968. However, Motown then countersued him to try to keep the singer from leaving the band, because, you know, as egotistical as he was at that point, he was kind of, at least from a vocal standpoint, the heart of the band. And eventually the case was settled, that required Ruffin to remain with the Motown to finish out his initial contract, because I guess he initially joined Motown as a solo artist and always had a separate contract from the other Temptations, Mm. which some felt caused a lot of infighting within the group. So he finished out his contract with them and then left to do his own solo career. Um, He had a string of decent hits in the early 70s, such as the Iraq and uh, Iran, because they don't have maps. What? Remember that ditzy woman who, like, won Miss America and they asked her that question and she was an idiot? They asked her some question about, like, why don't, why don't most, why can't most Americans point out, like, America on a map or something? Mm -hmm. And she, like, went into this complete ditzy answer about, like, how people in Iraq and Iran don't have maps. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. That makes sense. I don't know how you never heard of this. It was, like, the biggest thing of, like, 2009 or something. Weird. Anyways. Okay. Um... Yeah, David Ruffin in the early 70s had, I guess, modest hits. Walk Away From Love, I Miss You, My Whole World Ended the Moment I Lost You. Mm. So, a lot of good stuff there. Um, when, when you were listing the names of the Temptations uh, a few minutes ago, yes, and there was David Ruffin and there was the other, his brother. His brother wasn't part of the Temptations at the time. His brother, he brought on, actually, he did an album with his brother, in that's the early cool. 70s during his solo career called My Brother's Keeper uh, and that kind of put his brother on the map oh, as well cool. so then his brother went and did, off, did a solo thing he only had a couple albums but oh, okay. they were good yeah because I remember I was wondering which one of them did the song Walk Away From Love because uh, uh, I like that song but it looks like it was David Ruffin so that's cool yeah I don't hold on yeah the the song I guess popular songs off of that album they did a cover of Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time. Hmm. They did a cover of Stand By Me, which became really popular. What was his What was his brother's name, though? Jimmy Ruffin. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And funny enough, his kind of final hit that ended up going to the top ten was 1975's Walk Away From Love, produced by Van McCoy, 
who did the stuff. Hustle. Thank you. Uh, and the song Walk Away From Love reached number nine on the pop chart and sold over one million copies. And it was actually awarded a gold disc by the RIAA in February of 1976. Yeah. I think that's right after they changed the thing, because remember before before gold was like 500k, and then gold moved up to a million. Oh, yeah. I don't know, whatever. Keeping that in my head is hard. Hmm. Um, so let's listen to a little clip of Walk Away From My Love by David Ruffin. We hope you don't walk away from love for this next song. That shakes my body that even I don't understand So I'm leaving It's one of those songs that I really like, but I always forget about until I hear it again. <laughs> yeah, David Ruffin's solo career wasn't nearly as popular as his career with The Temptations. Hmm. It was good, and he had a lot of good songs for what it was, but I don't think he kind of did as much of a jump start as other artists did. You know, that's an interesting uh, point, actually, because in a lot of these cases, the solo artist becomes at least as popular as the band that they came from. I mean, like Diana Ross was... You know, extremely popular. Curtis Mayfield was pretty popular. Mm-hmm. Even Lionel Richie. Um, David Ruffin, however, I would say, not yeah, so definitely much. not as popular as The Temptations as a group. I mean, the only one that I would probably say maybe, maybe was like as popular was Eddie Kendricks. And even that's kind of a stretch. Yeah. But didn't we talk about him a few weeks ago? We did. With something? Yeah. I think it's just because The Temptations, Sailor to the Supremes, were just like literally like the Black Beatles. It's <laughs> kind of racist. Yeah that, like, no matter what these solo artists did, they couldn't match the power of them together because they were basically like a super group yeah. of, like, amazing musicians. And if any one of them broke off, they were only modest, modestly successful because they were so much more harmonic together. Yeah. If that makes sense. It does. Okay. That's a good point. So, um, yes, that's my little tidbit on David Ruffin's launch to semi-fame yeah. through The Temptations. What do we got next, Mr. Peter? Coming up next, we have one more group and artists that we want to talk about. The group is the Valentinos, not referring to the the, <laughs> the pizza restaurant chain. I don't even know how widespread they are. I know they are around here. You know what? I don't you know, know what? We're gonna find out. <laughs> this is gonna be this is gonna be the fast food episode. This is why I love funk radio because we can just talk about whatever we want. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Valentinos is a is a regional Italian restaurant based in Lincoln, Nebraska. It was founded by Val and Vina Weiler in 1957, hey, before Taco Bell. So they have 41 locations in Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas, South Dakota, North Dakota, and Minnesota. And here. <laughs> Unless uh, this is a different Valentino's. Does it not mention... You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to Yelp. I'm going to look up Valentino's and I'm going to go to their website. That's a good idea. See how resourceful I am. See, pizza. the funky listeners come to the show to listen about funk stuff. And facts about music history, but then they also get to learn about local business. Come for the food, stay for the funk. Exactly. (laughs) We make the pizza. (laughs) Um, Apparently, this particular Valentino's is uh, just a single place. Hmm. Well, I I know there's two or three of them locally, so maybe it's a smaller chain that has the same name as the bigger one. Menu about us. Oh, here, there are three, you're right. Yeah. There's one on Tustin Street in Orange. There's one on Chapman. There's one on Chapman, and there's one in Yorba Linda. 
Okay. Oh, yeah, there is. Well, good for them. Their website is actually not terrible. Usually food websites suck. And it's not the same one as the other one? No, that one is apparently a much larger chain based in the Midwest. Hmm. Well, if you happen to be located in the Midwest, then you can check out Valentino's Pizza. Yes. And tell us on our Facebook page what you think of their pizza. Hey! I didn't know Valentino's had churros. Fun fact. I'm hungry. <laughs> oh, man, we gotta go there sometime. Even, like, Didn't one of us get food poisoning from there once? No, Somebody I, got, did. I, I get them mixed up. I got food poisoning from the pizza place in the circle. I forgot that. That is Valentino's. Oh, it is? Oh, no, that's Zito's. That's Zito's. That's it. Um, oh, no, I've been thinking of Zito's this whole time. I got food poisoning from Zito's when we went there for some celebration at, from one class because I got I made the mistake of getting their calzone. Yeah. And I just vomited pure black death for like all night long. Fun fact, don't go to Zito's, apparently. <laughs> Fun fact, we are not sponsored by them. <laughs> I would not be I would not be opposed to Valentine's. Well, funky listeners, it sounds like Kyle just died. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm like the Dick Van Dyke of music. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like you like fell off a cliff with your microphone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Getting off of the subject of concussions and Valentinos, what were we talking about? We were talking about Valentinos, um, the R&B group from Cleveland, yeah. Ohio. Hey, that's... I bet you they have Valentinos there. You know, in Cleveland. Maybe the restaurant was inspired by the group. <laughs> I'm sure. Probably not. Nothing says Italian pizza like Soul R&B, music. R&B people. Yeah. Um, so the Valentinos were made up of... The five Womack brothers, Friendly Jr., Curtis, Bobby, Cecil, and Harry. Like many sibling bands, several that we've talked about before, um, they got their start performing at their local church in Cleveland, where their father, Father Friendly, was a preacher. That is amazing. And that is the best name ever. (laughs) That is so awesome. Father Friendly. (laughs) That just sounds like the name of, like, the most creepiest, like, pedophile priest in the world. (laughs) However, I'm sure he was a very good man. Or, like, the coolest priest ever. It's like Father McFeely or something. Oh, gosh. Anyway, um, so the boys, the Womack boys, showed early signs of musical talent, and subsequently became known as the Womack Brothers. I mean, they always were the Womack Brothers (laughs) by name, but that's what they called themselves as a group. Um, In their teenage years, the group was discovered by Sam Cooke, who is a really famous guy, if you don't know. And he signed them to his own record label, SAR Records, in 1960. Uh, The group started out with a couple of unsuccessful gospel songs uh, until Bobby suggested that they take a more secular direction um, in their lyrics, and also uh, they changed their name to the Valentinos instead. So I guess to kind of distance themselves from the old style that they were um, used to when they were growing up. That's pretty cool. Something I didn't know about how Bobby Womack split from this group to form his own solo career. I had no idea about any of this, but I found it really interesting. Mm-hmm. He, his decision to split from the group was based primarily on a scandal that arose following Sam Cooke's unexpected death in 1964. Um, as we talked about before on the show, basically Sam Cooke, he was in a hotel of some kind in Los Angeles. In the middle of the night, he appeared like naked and completely drugged out and drunk, and the hotel owner shot him or something. It's, I think it's still kind of uh, a controversy about what actually happened. Mm. 
but at the time that was you know a huge huge news and the investigation lasted for a long time um while that investigation was going on cook's widowed wife kind of took a shine to bobby womack and they became very close and eventually they got married within a year of cook's death which is kind of weird in itself but also was something else i found really creepy is that she requested that bobby wear one of sam's suits to their wedding which is really creepy (laughs) Ew! you don't wear dead people clothes yeah so that whole situation really angered uh sam cook's fans so i guess bobby decided to split away from the valentinos to kind of avoid bringing them all down with this scandal and something else kind of interesting is that it did take him a number of years to kind of regain the public's trust and respect um, because in the first two or three years, at least, of his solo career, Rito DJs completely refused to play his music oh, wow. because of this whole thing. So for the first few years of his solo career, he basically couldn't release any music. And then eventually, he I think he just didn't... He went into um, like backing band type music for a while. Kind of a tangent, but wouldn't it be nice if like radio DJs had that much what's the word control? <laughs> control, yeah. Like nowadays, like nowadays, you have guys like what's that guy who everyone hates, Chris Brown, who <laughs> like beats the crap out of his girlfriend, and yet they still play his music because it's popular. Yeah. Or like if radio DJs were like, "Hey, this guy's a douche that we don't want to promote, so we're not going to play his stuff." Yeah, yeah, you're but, right. I mean, it seems like the DJs had a whole lot more control back yeah, then it's and, because and it's, to choosing what they thought was a good song and some songs became really popular because the DJs thought it was good I think the problem is that like back then radio stations were a lot more localized and mm-hmm. nowadays they're like this, these giant like even though they're still semi-localized you know they're localized to large metropolitan areas yeah and they're beholden to like their advertisers and different recording studio groups so they don't have as much say anymore they kind of just have to do whatever anyone who has a stake in them tells them. Well, the thing is, like, any given radio station in the country is basically the same. The only thing that's different, they just say, hey, insert city here, and then, yeah, true. you know, whatever, and they all play the same music. It's not like you would find, like, one specific... I mean, like, you do still find specific DJs or, like, talk hosts that you like, mm. but I don't think it's quite the same thing, whereas back then, I, I feel like it was more of a specific DJ could say, hey this is an up-and-coming person I really like and let's play it. Yeah, it's like it's like back then the DJs were more like personalities in and of themselves than yeah. like following rather than the station as a whole yeah. necessarily. Because I mean I the, the stations are basically companies. Yeah, like when I all ever so occasionally listen to K-Rock like I don't know who any of the DJs are and I tr- truly don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Too bad. Yeah. Reminiscing about times before we existed. I know, we always do that. Like we should have <laughs> both of us should have been born in like nineteen sixty five. That would have been interesting. That would have been amazing. Like, <laughs> as much as I which is funny because my entire current career is based on technology, but yeah. it's so funny how like like aside from that I'm so like not <laughs> not current. Yeah. Anyway, so with the Valentinos and the original group with the Womack brothers, they had a fairly popular song called It's All Over Now. And we're going to listen to a clip of that right now before I sneeze.
So that was It's All Over Now by the Valentinos, featuring Bobby Womack, who, as we are describing, left the group in 1965, I guess, uh, to pursue his solo career. Do you want to tell us about his career, Kyle? I guess I could. Bobby Womack, after he finally gained back the public trust, so to speak, he kind of, in the outset, was unable to find much of a foothold with his solo career. And as Peter said before, initial singles he released like I Found True Love or basically avoided like The Plague <laughs> um, because he was considered like the most dubious evil man in all of R&B. Mm. Um, and I guess to make ends meet at the time he became a backing guitarist initially playing with uh, Ray Charles. And Ray Charles is no stranger to controversy himself, so... <laughs> and then I guess after that Womack moved on to make a connection with Chips Moman who was the founder of American Studio in Memphis, and he became the backing guitarist there for such famous acts as Joe Tex, King Curtis, and others. Mm-hmm. So he, mild success there. And then I guess after that, from 1968 to 1971, he finally broke out and scored a string of hits, which eventually landed him through a bunch of different record mergers and stuff, landed him at United Artists, where he released his first solo album, Communication. Hmm. Um, the sophomore album to that, then his 1972 second release, Understanding, launched his hit single, Woman's Gotta Have It, hmm. which actually then became his first solo number one. Yeah. That was in 72. He broke off in 65. So that took him a good seven years. Pretty much. Because as we saw with people like uh, Lionel Richie, it only took him like two months Yeah. to do that. And actually, I think possibly with Diana Ross as well. Pretty much. Yeah, they both they both only took him a couple of months. So it kind of sucks for Bobby Womack that he kind of had to start over, basically. Oh, I guess another note on this album was the album Understanding was actually the soundtrack to the black exploitation film Across 110th Street, which is where the song Across 110th Street came oh, from. Oh, really? That song, as well as the song Across 110th Street, also regained popularity in the 90s because they were both used in... Quentin Tarantino's film, Jackie Brown, which we talked about when we talked about Quentin Tarantino films. That's true. So, fun fact. Yeah, it's weird, because the album is called Understanding, but it's not called the name of the movie it's from, which most albums are. Hmm. Similar to um, Earth, Wind, and Fire. That's true. So, that's kind of cool. So, yeah, let's actually listen to a little clip of Woman's Gotta Have It by Bobby Womack, and you can... Get some understanding yourself. Say the thing that make you feel better every day. And you got to stay on your peace and cues. If you don't, the bowman, you can easily lose. Oh, so that was Woman's Gotta Have It by Bobby Womack from his second solo album, Understanding. Yep. Um, something I forgot to mention was that, so we know that uh, Bobby Womack married Sam Cooke's widowed wife. Yes. And his brother, Cecil Womack, married Sam Cooke's daughter, uh, Linda Womack, or uh, Linda Cooke, who became Linda Womack. And they performed together as the duo Womack and Womack. Yes, I forgot that. If Cecil married Cooke's daughter and Bobby married Cooke's wife... Then that would make his that would make her daughter also her uh, 
sister-in-law. So Bobby That's Womack is not only Cecil's brother, but he's also his father-in-law? No, he's also his brother-in-law. Wait, no. No, father-in-law. Oh, no, he'd be father-in-law to Linda. Yeah, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> so Bobby Womack would be father-in-law to Linda, as well as his wife uh, would be mother-in-law to her own daughter, as well as... Or no, she would be sister-in-law to her daughter, as well as mother. That's kind of creepy. That is really creepy. But who's their Uncle Grandpa? Oh, God. What? Okay, you watch that show. What the hell is that show? <laughs> it's some cartoon on Cartoon Network that premiered recently. And it looked kind of psychedelic, so I wanted to see it. And it, it, it had that same style as that one show, Gravity Falls or whatever. Sort of, yeah. Although kind of elements of it are almost like 80s-ish. Really? Kind of strangely. It feels like it's not a really modern cartoon. It feels kind of old. Huh. In the style, anyway. It's <laughs> Parts of it are kind of psychedelic, which is hilarious. Uh, some of the characters I hate, so those aren't funny. He's kind of funny. It's kind of ridiculous. And I guess the premise of the show is that this guy with a weird beard and lederhosen is everyone in the world's uncle and grandpa. Okay. I don't know if I would recommend it, but... <laughs> It's one of those shows that would be amazing if you were high. Kind of I'll put like, it that way. Kind of like Adventure Time. Sort of, yeah. Although I can actually watch Adventure Time. Not high. Not high, but... <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's kind of weird. So, so is he like Santa Claus? He just shows up to people's... He shows up in a creepy RV and does magical stuff. <laughs> he, he shows up in an RV and says, let's cook. <laughs> that's kind of weird. I... Is it? I'm gonna sound totally curmudgeon right now, but I kind of think cartoons nowadays mostly suck. Yeah. Like, I dig Adventure Time. Yeah. That's a good one. That's about it. <laughs> SpongeBob's been around so long; it's become like the Simpsons of kids. I wouldn't cartoons. even. Yeah, I wouldn't even call SpongeBob like a. I mean, in that same category. A current cartoon? No. Not yeah. At all. And I, I don't even know what is. What's that one? There's, what is it called? There's regular show. There's, yeah. Like World of the, Gumball. The, that's it. I hate both of those so hard. I haven't, I haven't seen either of those, but they both don't look funny to me at all, so. No, I watched like one episode of each because it was on because I forgot why. Uh-huh. And Were they both bad? of them, I'm just, yeah. I'm uh-huh. just like, this is really, really dumb. It's like, it tries to like put in adult humor in a hmm. way, but it totally goes over kids' heads so, to the point that it doesn't even make sense within the show anymore. Uh and it's just like, okay, that's not funny because it's not pertinent. It's just like, haha, adult you, humor. You know, you know what show did an amazing job with that? Was um, Pee-wee's Playhouse. Oh, God. Do you remember, God, it was at least five years ago, maybe more, when they, um, were, sh- when they were showing reruns of Pee-wee's Playhouse on Adult Swim, on Cartoon Network? Yes. I remember watching that, and it was actually, there's so much, like, innuendos and stuff. The kids would obviously never get. Yeah. But it made it kind of funny. Same with, obviously, Ren and Stimpy. But, you know, it had a lot of innuendos that I totally didn't even catch as a kid. Is that show Rocco's Modern Life. Yeah. You know what's really funny? You know the job you worked at? Like, it was like a call center? Apparently, it was a sex hotline. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Because, like, their slogan was like, like, be friendly, be naughty, be something. And I I never got that as a kid. And I'm like, 
I'm like thinking back. I'm like, you worked at a sex hotline. <laughs> Wasn't I think it's, I think it was the same guy who created that show. Was the same guy who created um, Phineas and Ferb. Really, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, that show actually wasn't that isn't that bad. Uh, I haven't yeah, watched it in a while, but right, I've seen a couple they of actually they did actually it's not bad. I kind of no, dig that right. one too a little bit. Um, not quite as much as Adventure Time. Yeah, that one I forgot. Uh, that one's not bad. There's some people that are like obsessed with that show. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, it's weird because I found the first season just absolutely hilarious, but then like after that. I didn't really find that funny, but I still find it kind of interesting. What, are we talking about Adventure Time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I I agree. Like, there was some stuff that was kind of funny here and there, but they went a little bit downhill. Yeah. I miss old, like, Cartoon Network cartoons, like Johnny Bravo. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad that they brought him to Netflix, because... I know, that, like, made me have all kinds of, like, memory lane trips. Oh! You and I were talking the other night about classic Cartoon Network shows. I forgot to bring this up. Yes. Remember when, for a while, they had that whole line of serials, each um, for each of those Cartoon Network shows. It was it, had, it was like I don't know two thousand two thousand one ish. Maybe I don't. Uh, um, I was never really a huge cereal eater. So oh, uh, but yeah, they had like special cereals for each of those. Sh- they had like Johnny Bravo. Johnny Bravo's. <laughs> eh. Powerpuff Girls. They had like Rice Krispies that were. It was like a cross between Rice Krispies and uh, Pop Rocks. What the hell? And when you ate them, it would kind of like fizz in your mouth. So like the point was that like they were punching you in your mouth or something because they were. They <laughs> I like loved cereal commercials. <laughs> when I was a kid. They were so nonsensical. Yeah. Like the whole tricks are for kids thing. I never understood that. <laughs> like, only kids can have sugar-induced granules of more sugar. Of, <laughs> Of a food-like substance. Yeah. They are not for rabbits. <laughs> I saw this. Well, really lucky charms quote. aren't for Irish people either. Oh yeah. What did you yeah. say? I was about to say I saw this really gross, like, conceptual tie-in that cocoa puffs were actually like the rabbit turds from the Trix Rabbit. That makes way too much sense. <laughs> but I would still eat them. <laughs> That's really gross. Yeah right. Uh, so yeah, that was our discussion on cartoons and cereal, because we're five. <laughs> it's like the older you get, the more you latch on to not being old. It's kind of sad. Yeah, I was thinking recently, I've, I've, the, as time goes on, I'm starting to appreciate the 90s more and more. Oh, completely. It's going to be like, you know, when we're like 40, we're like, things were better in the 90s. We had yeah. chocolate with candy inside. I don't know if it was better, but <laughs> it was kind of cool. Hey, we had, like, the biggest economic boom of the 20th century. So. Well, I mean, as kids, we didn't care about that. We cared no. about... Pokemon, exactly. Pokemon cards. <laughs> if you enjoyed our show today, um, hopefully you enjoy more than just music facts, because obviously we talk about more than just that. Uh, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash getyourfunk. And you can also subscribe to us on iTunes. Search for Funk Radio under the podcast section. And we're right there at the top, like we should be, because we're pretty cool. And now you can also follow us on Spotify. Um, We'll link you a link on the thing called Facebook. (laughs) You might as well just like our Facebook page, because that's where we post the episodes along with the playlists that we create every week. As well as fun facts and quizzes. And fun facts and quizzes, yeah. 
did anyone besides um, that one dude get that question right about uh, what's Bootsy Collins' real name? I don't think anybody else said anything. We have no fans. <laughs> well, you can be our fans, listeners. Yeah. I got, we gotta get the word out. We gotta put the word to the streets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah, that was a long episode. We'll let you funky listeners get on with your regular lives. Okay. And if you're on a binge, you can listen to our next episode, if it exists at this time. Man, that'd be awesome to go on a funk binge. Just listen to all of our episodes. <laughs> well, we have... This is, what, our 69th, I think? Something like that. So, you listeners can go... Ah, <laughs> 69. This has been your host, Peter. <laughs> this has been your host... Your inappropriate host, Kyle. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Have we a good night, you. or good day, or whatever it is for you. A good fun. Bye. Bye. <laughs> For more podcasts and the latest news in gaming, movies, and entertainment, visit 8thCircuit.com.